Good morning, Mount Calvary Church. We're, we're thankful that we can be together in worship. This morning we're going to be in 1 Samuel 11. And so if you have a Bible and you can turn to 1 Samuel 11, uh, we'll be reading through the text this morning. How many of you bought your sight and sound tickets for the show, David, like I commanded you last week? For the almonds alone, this show is worth it, okay? It's a great show. We had a great time. In the opening scene of David, I'll spoil just a little bit. Um, the first scene is called the prologue, and the, the stage is real dark. Um, it's, it's a dark scene. They're pounding on the drums. They're banging on the piano. I was tempted to recreate it. Um, it, it they're, they're strumming their guitars, and the people are shouting. They're chanting together, give us a king. Give us a king. We want to be like the nations. Give us a king. And it is a dark scene. It's a dark time for Israel. They want to be like the nations. Give us a king, someone we can see, someone we can follow, someone who leads us in a different direction. But then all of a sudden, the, the scene begins to lighten in this prologue. The lights dim, the harp comes out, and the whole scene shifts. And in the silhouettes in the background, you see a group of men choose one of the men who we know to be Saul. And they go and they make him this king, but it's this real contrast in the scene of this darkness, yet there's this light, and you, the scene ends. It's a very short scene, setting up uh, Saul. But you're left wondering, where is this going to go? Is this a bad thing? Is this a good thing? What kind of man, what kind of king will Saul be? And so, in 1 Samuel, this is really what we've been seeing last week. We saw with Saul, what kind of king is he going to be? The stage was set. Remember, he was anointed and affirmed with the three signs. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was announced. He was reminded. And if you remember last week, the message was, there's no excuses, Saul. God has given you everything you need to be the king that he wants you to be. And the message for you and for me last week was the same thing. There are no excuses for us to be all that we've been made to be in Christ Jesus. But now we're still left wondering, as we get into chapter 11, what kind of king will Saul be? And we will continue to ask the question as we work through this text. And so I'll read the 15 verses of chapter 11, and then we can pray together. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and the people wept aloud. Now behold, 
Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon his, on the people, and they came out as one man. And when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were, were left together. Verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we ask, just like we sang, sang this morning, that you would tune our hearts, that you would draw us to you, that you would speak to us through your word, by your spirit, that we would leave today with our eyes and our hearts fully focused on you. And God, we recognize that this is a challenging text. We've got things in our hearts and in our lives, our minds that are stressful and overwhelming. There, there are many reasons for us to leave this room completely unchanged this morning. But God, we know that through your spirit, you can speak and you can change and you can encourage and you can lead us. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to hear. Help us to be willing to hear. Willing to hear what you have for us today. And, and so, God, we pray that you would help us to this end. We love you. We worship you in the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. For the second week in a row, I'm going to give my sermon a title. I don't know what's happening to me. I don't know if this is a new thing or not, but last week the stage was set. I just said with Saul, I mean, everything was set on the stage for Saul to be the king that God made him to be. And we're still waiting. What kind of king is he going to be? Now this week in chapter 11, I'm calling it SOS, the Morse code distress signal, three dots, three dashes, and three dots. The Navy would use this when there was an emergency, when they needed to communicate to one of their friends, to someone on their side, that they need help. And over time, no longer was the Morse code used, but SOS came to mean 
save our ship or save our souls. It was something that you could just shout. But when you shouted, SOS, what you're communicating is, we need help immediately. I don't know if you've ever had an SOS moment uh, on the water, especially. I mean, it's a pretty frightening thing to be on the water and to be to, to realize that you're not in control. If you've ever been caught in a riptide or been on a boat where the boat stopped working. Uh, but it is a pretty frightening thing at times to be on the water. We were at the Chesapeake Bay this summer, and I went paddleboarding with my niece, who's a high school student, and we were out on the water, calm, beautiful day. She has her cell phone. We're taking TikToks or whatever they do, and we're talking and laughing and, and just kind of floating along, and we kind of went out beyond this point, and all of a sudden, um, everything changed. The weather completely changed. The waves became stronger, and we recognized that we, we could not get back to our house. It wasn't very far, but because of the waves and because of the tide and because of the pool, that we were not going anywhere. And at one point, my niece lost her paddle, and she dropped it, and, and the, the waves were so strong that there was no recovering that paddle. And, I, and then she fell off her paddleboard with her cell phone, above the water, one hand on the board, and she starts to lose grip of the board. And I shout to her, I said, drop your cell phone. She said, no. <laughs> I said, get on your paddleboard. This is an emergency. We need help. And she, she didn't. She did not drop the phone. She's clutching that phone. I'm like, this is a sermon illustration, Annie. But we got the phone and we got on the board and we called for help and her brother came in a canoe and got us. But it was a pretty frightening situation. And what we see here with Israel in 1 Samuel 11, this is an emergency. It's a crisis. This is not a good moment for them. And we all know what a crisis feels like. I mean, this is what it, this is what it seems to be happening here in 1 Samuel, that a crisis moment. That everything's changed, and we've all had those phone calls. Those phone calls that change everything, that cause the world to just completely slow down, everything upside down. And we've all been in those moments. We've all received those calls. I was, uh, I was sent a video this week from one of my friends in Texas. And it was an SOS moment for my friend. He he said on Tuesday he got one of those phone calls. The way he described it was just like I had already written in my sermon. He said, everything slowed down and my world is now upside down. He said, I went to the doctor and I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, cancer in his bone marrow. And, it just, and he just said, I, I need help. I need prayer and I need support. And this is what we walk into here in 1 Samuel 11. There is a crisis. There is an SOS. But then we're going to see in verses 5 through 11, there's salvation. That's the word that's repeated a couple times if you picked it up. Salvation. 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 And then as the text comes to a close in chapter 11, verses 12 through 15, we'll see renewal. So let's look at the first four verses and see this desperate cry of help from Israel. If you remember how chapter 10 ended, 
Okay, when Saul was publicly announced, he was reminded, he read, they, they read Deuteronomy probably to say this is the kind of king that is honoring to God. And you remember that from there spawned these two groups of people, men of valor whose hearts had been touched by God was the one group. They went with Saul back to his home. You remember them? The second group was worthless men. And you remember what they said? How can this man save us? How can this kind of king do anything for us? And we're kind of left there in chapter 10. And as we get to chapter 11, we start to see this second group of men questioning how can Saul save us? We see that thought and that idea and that belief continue into chapter 11. And in verse 1, we're introduced to the crisis. Okay? Israel in Jabesh Gilead, they are facing death and destruction. So last week we saw from the, from the east, the Philistines had come in to Gibeath Elohim. Remember in verse 5 of chapter 10, it says there's a garrison of Philistines. So the Philistines are coming from the east, from the west. Now we're told in verse 1, the Ammonites are coming in. And so literally, quite literally, Israel is drowning. I mean, they are surrounded. They've got enemies on all sides. And then we're introduced to Nahash. The text says that Nahash went up and besieged, besieged Israel, which is interesting. There's no mention of struggle. There's no mention of a war or a battle. I mean, the text is just really matter of fact. Nahash came and got them. And he has them in a corner. They are besieged and they are left with no good options. But this fits with what we know about the Ammonites. I mean, this, this uh, hostility between Israel and the Ammonites goes all the way back to Genesis. The Philistines were the main arch enemies of Israel. The Ammonites would have been second. Always up against Israel and the work of God. And so these, these men, this nation, we see, if you track them in the Old Testament, they are, they are vile and they are perverse. Read Amos 1.13 if you want to see. I mean, it's, it's gross. It's awful what they're doing. But not only are they vile and perverse, here we know that they are motivated by revenge. They had just been defeated by Jephthah the judge at the end of the book of Judges. And now they are back, and they have vengeance, and they want revenge, and they have a new leader, Nahash. And listen, this king, Nahash, he is as vile and as wicked as they come. His name means the serpent. I mean, that's, that is who he is. He's not just focused on capturing Israel. I mean, he's focused on how can I make the Israelites suffer? And so this is the scene. What would the people of Jabesh do? How are they going to handle? I mean, they are besieged and they are in a corner. And so out of desperation, they make a covenant with Nahash. They say, be our king, verse 1. We will be your servants. Be our king. We, are, we, we will serve you. And this must not have been that bad of an option, at least in their minds, because all along we've been saying, what did Israel want? We want a king like the nations. And so Israel could have been thinking, this actually isn't 
that bad. We get the king that we always wanted. But Nahash responds in verse 2. And this is, it is cruel and vile and ruthless. He says, yes, you can be my slaves, but I will gouge out your right eye. So as I was studying about what this would have meant for Israel to have their right eyes gouged out, what they would do in, in ancient warfare is they would stick their, their shield in the ground and to see who was coming, they'd poke their heads out to the side and their right eye would be the only thing visible of their faces. And so it's pretty clear what Nahash is doing here. He's not just seeking to defeat them. He is seeking to, to leave them utterly defenseless. He wants to shame them. He wants to disgrace them. And he wants them to be able to hardly be able to do anything at all. And so as Israel hears this counter offer, yes, you can be my slave, but I will gouge out your eye. They, I think, recognize that this, this isn't a good option. And so they give a counter offer to his original offer. And they say, well, let us go and find someone to save us. Like, that's not a good, it's your, thanks for the offer. We decline. Now let us find some people to fight you to save us. And it's, it's interesting that Nahash would agree to this, right? I mean, that's, why would you say, sure, go find someone to save you, and then we could actually have a battle. But Nahash is wicked. He's insane. He, he's not worried about Israel. He's not worried that they're going to find someone to come and save them. He relishes every opportunity. How can I humiliate and shame and defeat Israel? The more, the merrier. And so he agrees to this deal. Have your seven days. So in verse four, the SOS goes out. And, and this is an SOS. Like we are about to be rendered useless, shamed to the core, and we need help. And it's interesting, as you start to read this, this search that they start to, to go out for, I mean, it's surprising, because if you're reading the text, and you're, you've just read 9 and 10 of 1 Samuel, what, who are you expecting for them to go make a beeline for? Like, who, who are you just anticipating being the one person who could save them from their enemies, the king who was just anointed to be their king. You're thinking, well, of course they're going to go find Saul. Of course they are. But the text makes it sound like, makes it feel like that they're not even thinking about Saul. I mean, isn't it a little interesting that, yeah, they end up going to his hometown, but they're not looking for Saul, are they? Who do they tell in town? They tell the people. And the people begin to weep, but then do the people go and tell Saul? How does Saul find out in the text? Saul hears the weeping, and he's the one that starts to ask the questions. It's just, to me, an interesting detail that I think is just a hint about the kind of king Saul is going to be. But at least in our text this morning, it's not presented as necessarily positive or necessarily negative. It's just how the story plays out. But everything's about to change. The people are weeping. 
Saul hears, and we are about to see salvation in verses 5 through 11. And I think the text makes it pretty clear, even from how Saul finds out about the situation to what is presented here in verse 6. Pretty clear that salvation does not come from Saul. Salvation does not come from the king Saul. Who is the initiator? Who is the one who does the saving? Verse 6, the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. God is the one whom we, we have victory, whom we have rescue. And Saul here certainly is a test case of that. The Spirit of God rushes upon him. Okay, we saw this last week. The Spirit of God rushed upon him there. We talked about how this is an empowering this is not salvation, but this is more like what happens in the judges when the Spirit of God would rush upon Samson and you were empowered and you were given the strength to do something that God has called you to do against the enemies of God. And so this is what we see here. Saul becomes angry, righteously angry. In this Hulk-like moment, this weird turn of the scene, Saul goes after his oxen. And this is, this is strange. I, I, did you remember this part of 1 Samuel? And he tears into his oxen. He puts them in little Tupperware containers. He puts a nice little note and a bow on the oxen, and he sends it out all over Israel. And the note says, you better come and fight with me, or your oxen are going to be in the next Tupperware containers. And it is. It's just... It's bizarre. It comes off a little weird, but if you just, just think about where Saul has come, I mean, he is bold. He, he hears the weeping. God reveals to him what's happening. The Spirit of God rushes upon him. He's righteously angry. And now, all of a sudden, though it's weird, Saul is a leader, Saul is bold. Saul has strategy. He is not hiding in the baggage claim anymore. He has, he has grabbed the horns, literally, and he is going after what God has set before him. And so how do the people respond? Well, how would you respond? We're looking for volunteers in the fall. And how would you respond? You'd be like, sign me up. Whatever you say, Pastor Matt. And that's what the people do. It says in verse 7, the dread of the Lord fell upon the people. Of course it did. This is not happy, happy moment. This is not, this is, fits the occasion. They are trembling. They are full of dread. And so they are saying, what must be so wrong that our king would, would do this? And so they say, we will fight. We will show up. And so verse 8, they must, they're mustered together as one man. Three companies of soldiers. They, they send a messenger to the prisoners in Jabesh and just tell them, hey, just so that you know, by tomorrow morning, salvation will come with the rising of the sun. And what happens? In the morning watch, as the sun comes up, God comes through. The unified, oxen-motivated, Saul-led people of God descend on the Ammonites, and they destroy them, and they save the people of God. I mean, what, 
What a scene. And if you just go back to where they were just a few verses earlier in verses one, two, and three, and now all of a sudden, because of the hand of God and the leadership of Saul, the people of God, they have been saved. And you get to verse 12 and the scene shifts. I call this the renewal. They're now celebrating. And if you're following along this progression of Saul becoming king, I've already said it, he's been anointed privately between him and Samuel. He's been affirmed with the three signs. He was announced publicly, but here in chapter 11, this is the fourth and final stage of Saul becoming king. This religious ceremony, this formal installation of Saul as king. And it's interesting, surprising, verse 12. I have the word jaw-dropping in verse 12, that we get just a glimpse at the the heart of the people in verse 12, what do they do? This, they say, let's kill all the people who said, shall, shall Saul reign over us? Let's kill all the people who question Saul's ability to save us as king. And what's jaw-dropping to me about this, or what's interesting to me about this, is that no doubt that the very people that are recommending, let's kill the people who doubted Saul, are ones who themselves also doubted Saul. There's no confidence described in chapter 11 for Saul as king. Yet they are fickle enough, arrogant enough, zealous, overly zealous enough to now all of a sudden say, let's kill them all. But I love Saul's response in verse 13. It's one of the, the, the first great things we see Saul say. He says, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul gives grace. He gives grace. He recognizes, well, you, you should have doubted me. You should have doubted me to save you. That it was only because God and his spirit his empowering has Israel been saved. And so I will give grace that you doubted me to save you because I am unable to save you. And then we get to the last part of our passage this morning, verse 14. And I love this phrase here. Samuel steps into the scene. So the religious leader steps onto the scene. He's surveying everything that's happening here. And he calls the people in verse 14, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Renew the kingdom. What does that mean? What is he calling for when he says, it's time to renew what has been done with the kingdom? To renew something is to say something is now old, and we're going to go back to how it once was. And so, so Samuel is saying, let's go back to how things were supposed to be. Recommit to make something new again. And so certainly he's talking about this idea that Saul is their king. Renew the kingdom. God anointed this man. Let's renew our confidence in this man as king. But I think it's much more than just Saul being their king. I think he's saying also, along with that, by, by going back, embracing this idea that Saul is our king, we also go back to embrace that he is not our one true king, 
that when we renew the kingdom, we renew the kingdom the way that God has designed it. A man who's a king who is, is merely a prince, he's merely just a leader, and that he is not the king of kings, but he is the leader who sits under the authority of God himself. And so they are recommitting to the idea to the philosophy, the theology that says, God is the only king. Saul is our leader, the nice little prince. But we bow to one and one alone, and that is God himself. You know, as I was thinking about renewing the kingdom, I went back to chapter two of 1 Samuel, Hannah's prophecy. And I just picture Samuel as he's preaching to the people. He says, return to the kingdom. This is what he's telling them to return to to these ideas and these, this theology that serves as the foundation of their lives. Like, this is what we go back to. I'll read what she prophesied there. There's none holy like the Lord. There's none beside you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, but she who has many children's forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor, makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked ones shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. That's what they're returning to. The kingdom that says, you can't strength, you can't use your, your brute power to, to fix these things, that you prevail by being humble before God. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven, which we've seen. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. God is the king who gives strength to the little king. And so what Samuel is saying here, let's return to this, recognizing that we don't prevail by strength alone. And so for us this morning, you know, as we think about what, what does this look like for us, this kind of bizarre story about Saul piecemealing his oxen and getting help and finding victory against Nahash and the Ammonites, what, what does this mean for us? I mean, we're, we're not going to face a battle this week where the threat is eye-gouging. So what does this look like for us? But I think is the, the analogy of battle may make you uncomfortable. It is certainly something that we see written through the pages of the New Testament. Battle language is everywhere. And listen, the battles that we face, that you will face this week, are certainly different. Yet we still face battles. Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places that we are still in a battle. That we still wrestle. And we can't be in denial. Now we, we are still at war and it is not a physical war, but it is an invisible and it is a spiritual war. Satan is real and his havoc is real and he is just hurling upon your life crises after crises after crises. And listen, Satan, through, through what his work and through the battles on your life and my life, he, he wants to shame you. He wants to shame you. The picture of eye gouging, I mean, it's a descript picture. But remember, it's a, it's a picture of disgrace and shame. And we're not going to face Nahash, but do you remember what his name meant? It means serpent. And we face a different kind of serpent who wants to shame us, who wants us to be so self-deprecating. And we just, we just beat ourselves up so much that we are left just completely defenseless. That Satan wants to discourage you. And he wants to div divide you. And he wants to just fracture your relationships. And that Satan wants you to fail. And he wants these crises to cause you to just be completely ruined. And Satan wants you to be bitter and angry that your relationships are just ruined, that you, that you see your sin and you're just so overwhelmed by it that you have nowhere to go and that this is the battle that we face. And it looks different. There are many types of crises that we might face this week, but we know Satan is at battle. But listen, we have a king who went to the cross and we have a king who gives us victory, who in Colossians 2, Paul tells us that he's been disarmed. Because of what Christ did on the cross, he's been disarmed. He's been triumphed over. And that in him, we have victory. 1 Corinthians, oh, death, where's your sting? Where, where's, where's your sting, death? Thanks be to Christ. Because in you, we are victorious. That we can live in victory. That victory has been given to us. And that though there's crises and there's challenging situations, things that hurt us and harm us and overwhelm us and discourage us and all those things, that we can stand. That we can stand victorious in what Christ has done for us. And we just need to learn how to daily live in that victory, claiming that victory, that, that yes, life is hard. And as we go looking for our help in the midst of our crises, the SOS moments, we're like, we, we, we need help. That, that at the end of the day, we can recognize in the moment that our help comes from God alone, that he is our king, that we don't have to fix everything, solve everything, understand everything, search for answers wherever we can find them. But at the end of the day, we can say, God is our king. Thanks be to Jesus. Thanks be to Christ. And I think this last little phrase, renew the kingdom. I like that. Renew the kingdom. Recommit to the kingdom. 
this opportunity for us as we close out our service to say, yeah, yeah, I need to renew the kingdom. Renew this idea that God alone is on the throne and that I'm not. That we confess our sin, and we do this every, every Sunday. When we confess our sin, what we are doing is we are renewing the kingdom. We're saying, I tried to control, and I tried to live my life on my terms, but I am renewing the kingdom. I'm confessing my sin, and I'm bowing before you as the one true king. And listen, when we confess that, that we've turned this kingdom thing upside down and taken God off his throne and put ourselves on there, when we confess that, we are met with a lavish outpouring of grace. And so this morning, that's how I wanna close I'm gonna give you a chance to renew the kingdom, confess sin, be honest about where you have tried to control things yourself, whatever that looks like for you. And then we're gonna, we're gonna rejoice. You know, the text, the very last two words of the text this morning, the people of God rejoiced loudly. You remember what they were doing at the beginning of the chapter? They were wailing. I mean, weeping loudly, uncontrollable weeping. But here's what, here's what happens when we recognize that, that God is king alone, that Christ came and he, the king went to the cross for us. Our weeping and our despair becomes great rejoicing. And so then we'll close with the song, King of Kings. Perfect song for this, where we recognize he is the King of Kings. So let's spend a few minutes confessing our sins silently to ourselves.